Welcome to The Advertising Show, America's only radio program focusing on advertising, media, marketing, product development, branding, new media, sales and customer relations. Stay with us for entertaining marketing discussion and our special guest interview. Now, here are your hosts, Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Yes, indeed. We're so happy to be here with you on another Encore show for The Advertising Show. Ray Schillings, Brad Forsyth. The Advertising Show is being brought to you by Advertising Age Magazine. Visit online at adage.com. Advertising Show is a Big Radio Midgets production, a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production, by the way. Yeah. And uh, today it's uh, Lisa Gansky. Lisa is an author and just so many more things. She is actually, at heart, they call her a architect, an impact junkie. That's not a bad thing. With a strong interest in breaking the edges of formerly happy business models and bringing together not-so-likely characters in the form of new offerings, new teams, new partnerships. It sounds like a fun job, doesn't it? She is CEO and co-founder and chairman of Ophoto. She uh, drew on her uh, entrepreneurial spirit and experience developing global web services. Lisa and the team then worked to develop Ophoto into a world-class consumer services uh, offering, uh, which she left once Kodak Gallery reached over 45 million customers in 2005. In addition to her roles at Ophoto and Eastman Kodak, she was a co-founder and CEO of GNN, the first commercial website acquired by AOL in 1995. Those were the dark ages of the Internet, weren't they? <laughs> this is a great interview, and we know you're going to enjoy it on The Advertising Show. Stay right here. Meshing.it is the website. We're going to find out more about the book and more about Lisa as well as we welcome her out of uh, uh, Napa, California. Uh, pretty cool. Lisa, welcome to The Advertising Show. Thank you. Thanks very much, and thanks for inviting me. I'm real happy to be here. Great. And Ray's mentioned uh, Ophoto in reading your bio. What, tell us a little bit about Ophoto. What's it all about? Well, Ophoto was uh, invented really as a function of uh, me being in the witness protection program with my family because I live in California and they were in Philly. I took a lot of photos of the family and then I had to print and send and all these things. So as digital photography was just starting uh, to really take off, we started Ophoto in 1999 uh, with Kamran Mosinin. And uh, essentially it was, the, it was a very early... A site that allowed you to create an album and share photos with your friends and family and then print uh, high-quality photographs, make books and calendars and all those sorts of things. So, Lisa, do you want to tell us who you really are? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's out of the box at this point uh, as far as that witness protection plan. Oh, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you already blew it with Napa, so. Well, that's true. Well, you mentioned Sorry, Lisa. It. Yeah. We understand there's a great uh, home in Peoria for you now. Oops, blew that too. And by the way, I think I did see your picture on the side of a carton of milk the other day, but I didn't want to bring that up. Really? Yeah, yeah, low fat. It was nice. Huh? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, is there a tie-in between the inspiration for the book and Ophoto? Lisa. Probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. The random walk of my career is always inspired. I think, um, you know, Ophoto, we learned a lot about sharing. And uh, I think the, fir- w- the first wave of, for all of us, you know, the first wave of the Internet impacting businesses was really uh, first focused on digital products, so music, photography, video, and published content. And so a lot of those industries, if not, well, all of them, I'll say, have been significantly um, turned upside down and shaken, repackaged and rethought. And, and so photography, you know, being involved with Ophoto, we understood that, that uh, 
photography, com- consumer photography is all about sharing, sharing and celebrating, blah, blah, blah. So we um, created the business with the idea that people were going to share with friends and family. We would acquire one customer and get, you know, four or five, and that worked beautifully. As a function of that and also seeing what was happening with um, a couple of things, mobile, the mobile web, the fact that we have a GPS device and a mobile web in our pocket uh, allows us to basically have access to a lot of um, services and be located as well as to be able to locate physical goods. And so I think that the mesh came out of realizing that what happened in the first wave, which was a lot of sharing and learning how to repackage and uh, recreate experiences around digital products, uh, is now about to happen and, in fact, is fully in progress in happening with physical products. So cars, bikes, uh, ride-sharing, clothing, um, you know, kayaks, tools, um, certainly other things that enable that, like P2P financing, uh, those sorts of things are, you know, fully in gear. And it's not just in the U.S., it's taking place all over the world. But I think the mobile phones coupled with the, the historic practice and the comfort that we all have around sharing products from a digital perspective um, has enabled that. Certainly, issues like climate change and the recession also has caused people to rethink what they really value. And the, that's true for businesses, too. Well, in the, uh, the, t- the subtitle of your book, Why the Future of Business is Sharing, uh, in, in your book, The Mesh, you say that it's uh, all about being uh, network-enabled uh, and that sharing is really where the future is going in business, as your subtitle uh, states. Is this all about just technology and the digital world and without technology in the digital world? Why, why is this all about sharing? Is it all about technology? It's not about technology, but certainly technology has laid track for it in the same way that I think, you know, we have a physical infrastructure that allows us to move goods around the planet. Um, the technology has also allowed us to um, keep track of ourselves and things. And so we've been able to, you know, the old model of ownership, of needing to own um, the financial systems for insurance and for uh, mortgages and things like that, we're all in support of an ownership model. What we're starting to see is, you know, people moving more towards uh, vacation rentals by owner and Roomarama and couch surfing and, you know, the, the um, exclusive resorts is another good example that's that's quite high end. But there's ways that people gain access to um, the the services or the vacation homes in this in this example uh, without actually needing to own it. And so it begs the question of. Well, you know, why own it, or at least to re-examine what is it in your life that you really need to own. And the same is true for a business, from intellectual property to parts of the, vet, of the value chain. Well, in your book, you say that, for, you know, for the mesh to work, it can't be just for somebody else. It has to be for you as well as people like you. Are we talking uh, P2P here or just uh, birds of a feather, like type, like uh, attracts other like people? I mean, what's this all about? I think that um, the reason I wrote that in the book is because, uh, for example, living in what I refer to as the distortion field of Northern California, you know, a lot of times things will catch on here that may never catch in other parts of the country or the world, or it takes quite a while. And so what I was saying is that, you know, there are pockets 
where, um, and in Europe as well, Europe, that Europe has been for many years doing bike sharing and car sharing, but it, it, it hit a, a, a little hockey stick inflection point um, several years ago where it really started to catch on it, with groups of people that uh, had formerly owned cars or basically used uh, transit in other ways. And I think part of that is also that um, there's, a, there's a, another movement in which you see lots of people in, all around the world moving to um, major cities. And so one of the things that I noticed in doing the book is uh, when I got out of a taxi cab in New York versus Napa, uh, you walk out of New York, and everywhere I looked, I saw what I call a share platform, hotels, taxis, subways, public parks, office buildings, um, uh, what else, you know, whatever else, office buildings, I already said, restaurants, um, all these sorts of things, libraries, public art. They're, they're, all, um, they're all public shared platforms that, that no one owns the system, no one owns the particular um, model or building it per se. It wasn't modeled to own it uh, that only one person was going to use it, it as, a, as in our homes or our cars. It, the whole uh, notion is essentially that a community of people are going to uh, are going to share it, and as a result, from a climate perspective, you know, versus Northern California in Manhattan, um, I believe it's 25 or 30 percent less uh, carbon footprint <coughs> for people who are essentially in the same uh, lifestyle category, simply because they're, you know, they're using more and more share platforms. So it's a much more efficient way to live, um, and it's, it requires actually that that you have access rather than have the the former convenience of ownership. On the advertising show, Lisa, let me uh, take, we'll take a break here for just a moment. Uh, Lisa Gansky is our special guest. Lisa is author of The Mesh. Meshing it, uh, meshing.it, by the way, is the uh, website if you want to find out more. And, of course, we'll find out more about Lisa as we uh, continue through the advertising show. It's being powered by Shipple.com. It's S-C-H-I-P-U-L. That is an incredibly cool web marketing platform with a little thing called Tendency that works really great. Check it out at Shipple.com. Back with more with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth here on the advertising show in just a moment. You're listening to The Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Never borrow money, even just when you must borrow Ray and Brad on The Advertising Show with a special guest out of Northern California, some place called Napa, you've probably heard of it before. Lisa Gansky is author of The Mesh. Lisa is also a board member. We know that Lisa knows how to have fun. She's board member out of an environmental foundation called Dos Margaritas. <laughs> I like that. I want to yeah. join. Where can I donate, Lisa? <laughs> DosMargaritas.org. There you go. Very yeah. good. Well, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, guys. And by the way, Ray and I both uh, rocks, no salt for both of us. Just oh, I'm making notes. Just to mention. Thank yeah. You. Uh, you've just mentioned last segment about creating a share platform being the starting point for the mesh, and you also mentioned creating an information in, uh, infrastructure uh, to take full advantage of mobile, web, and social networks. 
I'm curious, Lisa, with brands like Nike and Adidas uh, now actively promoting their face. You have face- to say that right, Brad. It's Adidas. Well, if you're in Europe, you'd say Adidas, yeah. but uh, we say Adidas. Uh, now actively promoting their Facebook pages uh, over their primary websites. I'm, I'm curious, how can companies strike a balance between their primary website and their social media challenges? Uh, channel uh, challenges. I'm, I'm trying to say channels, Lisa. <laughs> you're, you're, you're getting there. You're yeah. like another yeah. dose margarita. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. I think you're asking you know, where to put the emphasis or, or how to call well, from both things. It seems like you might lose uh, emphasis of one by putting effort to the other, but I know there's got to be a way to strike a balance between the two or maybe even channel uh, one on back to the other. Certainly. I, mean, I, I think that we're in a place uh, right now in time where we're moving from a paradigm um, as a marketer, I could say. You know, we're moving from a paradigm where I think most marketers thought that their job was to control the brand. And clearly what's happened uh, with the mesh and, and the movement, uh, the, the, the currents around the mesh, create the, the, the reality that um, controlling the brand isn't the same as building, curating, and extending the brand. That in order to do that, it's that, that side of the equation is really driven by um, the, the, the people who are responding to your brand, your customers, uh, your partners, and in many cases your employees. And so, you know, there's all, there's all these things that we're seeing uh, where, I mean, without, uh, you know, BP is a good example, I guess, because it's very current, uh, where, you know, and they, I hate to pick on them because they've, got, you know, but they, they should be picked on, I guess. Something. I, especially here, you're talking about a Gulf Coast uh, area here, so yes. Right, right, so, you know, I think they come to mind, um, you know, for example, beyond petroleum was a great phrase, but um, if, you, if, the, if you're not walking the talk, then you'll be called on it. And, and I think that the reality is people, are, people who are marketers can no longer control position massage and, and carefully put the brand out nice and shiny and expect for people to swallow it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, we're responding as consumers and as you know, employees, partners, we're responding uh, in a real-time way. And I think it's the responsibility of the brand to keep a pulse, to understand who they're speaking to, to understand the real perception keep the, fre- the message fresh and authentic. And, um, and to do that, you know, tools like Facebook, I think, are extremely valuable. There may be, at this point, a little bit of overcorrection uh, or just kind of, you know, wondering on the part of, the, you know, the two folks you, re- you refer to, Nike and Adidas, um, you know, whether or which page or which, which source they're going to drive off of. But you see, you know, uh, Starbucks and, and, and as, a, as an example, working closely with uh, Foursquare, Groupon, working with many different companies uh, in Europe. I, I'm actually um, on the board of a company called Me Please that does the same thing uh, in the UK. And, you know, as we start to see this kind of technology uh, reach out uh, and, and touch people in their real lives, uh, the brands have an opportunity to, you know, get, get real-time feedback to to see who responds to what kinds of offers and to do a kind of microcasting of offers, but also from a brand perspective to really understand, do people care? Are they buying the story? And if not, you better, you better respond. What, could, would you give a grade to BP, and, or, or could they have done anything differently in your mind to make, uh, make a better impact on the recovery there? Um, of course, yes, I believe so. Um, you know, one of, would I make a grade? I mean, that's, 
I, I don't know that I have all the information that to do that, but I think clearly, um, for one thing, there was a lack of communication. And going dark in a, in a, in a bad time is a bad idea. Um, you know, people start to, you know, distrust runs rampant. And in this case, it, you know, there's a good reason for it. There was, um, you know, miscommunications or a lack of communication uh, that produced, you know, the, con- the, the, the result was far more consequential than I think it needed to be. Um, yeah, so I, I think, you know, from, from a, if I'm not assessing it from an environmental perspective, which will um, raise my ire, I, I suppose, uh, if I look at it from a brand perspective, I would just say that I don't think that they were um, on-brand and responsive and candid, you know, compared to years ago, the Tylenol example, which, you know, they stepped up, they, they made changes, they changed the cap, they created actually a, a, um, a better result for the rest of the industry as a function of the, the disaster that they had in their own, you know, in their own house. Yeah. Why, I have a quick question about Groupon. You mentioned them. Why are they such a hot commodity these days? Basically, you're giving away your product. You're not making any money. You're losing money here. But what it was, uh, uh, what is the deal with Groupon? I think that, um, you know, again, Groupon is, uh, all of these things, I think, are people, um, I don't know if you've ever flown a plane or, or been in a, a sailboat or something like that, but, you know, sometimes you pull on a lever or turn a knob and it's like, whoa, <laughs> I didn't know that was that sensitive. Um, and I think that a lot that this is what's happening with a lot of these tools, where on the one side marketers are getting criticized for not trying anything new, and on the other side, when you, when you know when you try something new, I think we should kind of announce, hey, this might kind of backfire, or you know, this is kind of we're going to try it with a flanker brand or something like that, because um, if it's a big company, uh, you know, because we're not really sure how how people are going to take it. In the case of um, some of the bad stories that have come out, I would say, for different companies who have used the Groupon uh, promotional platform, is that they got what they asked for in spades and that they simply didn't have the capacity to fill it. Um, and, and those are the only stories that I've heard that, have, that I would consider to backfire. But I would say, you know, Groupon is a promotional platform. It's basically saying, saying if I want to put my brand out there, um, I can make some crazy offer that I can't sustain. I'm going to lose money on. That's the, that's for sure. But what I'm going to do is make sure that the you know 400,000 people in the city of Chicago that are going to receive that email that day are going to see my brand. And some percentage of them that don't take me up on this crazy offer are going to remember me. And so it's basically they're they're buying a different kind of impression. Interesting. Lisa Gansky is our special guest here at the Advertising Show this weekend out of uh, Northern California and also the author of The Mesh. And we'll talk more with Lisa here in just a moment. Stay right there. Lisa Gansky is now our best friend here, uh, the author of The Mesh out of Northern California. Lisa, it is a pleasure to have you here on the Advertising Show. And it's a total pleasure to be here. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, and thanks for being a, a fan of the show. And before we brought Lisa on today, she was talking about some recent uh, programs that she'd been listening to. And we had a guest on that talked about the importance of design recently in the last several weeks. And in your book, you say successful participation in the mesh requires a product that holds up to repeated uses. I, I, I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about the trends that you see happening in design today as it relates to the mesh concept? Absolutely. I think it's in a few areas. Um, one is that, you know, we have historically, recently especially, um, designed and put products out that look fabulous but don't necessarily last. 
So the big emphasis with the mesh will be products that are durable, that are flexible, and that can be uh, recovered because we don't want toxic, toxic materials in there. Uh, the durability is essentially, you know, the, the current uh, or the most recent statistic that I have, for example, the U.S. Census says that uh, we use our cars about 90% of the time, and the rest of the time they just sit there. So if we think of it as, you know, increased usage, uh, effective usage, or yield management with cars and bikes and homes and appliances or pick your, pick your thing, um, these things are going to get a lot more use. They need to be a lot more durable. Um, secondly, if, if a car is going to adapt to different people's tastes and music and seat assignments and configurations and uh, what it can hold, etc., and the same with a bicycle, you know, it needs to be able to adapt to different bodies, uh, different kinds of mobile devices. If you imagine you're going to plug, uh, you know, your mobile phone in with, that will have the GPS and your music and, and you know, a number of other things, your, your phone directory and, and probably much more. Um, so these cars uh, are basically going to be platforms, and the bicycles are going to be platforms. And in some way, we could think about a city being a platform. And design really needs to be able to, um, to adapt, to adapt to other people, to have, to have um, longevity in the way that it's used. And lastly, that when it's at the end of its life, uh, as useful life as however it's been currently uh, put together, it should be able to be taken apart and uh, either upcycled into other parts or, you know, ultimately recycled. But if you squeeze hard on what we've been calling waste, I think that we'll all discover that there's a lot of value in what we've been throwing away. Well, that's a good point. You know, we all know how important market timing is for success. So, Lisa, why is now the right time for a mesh business? Well, it's it's all around us. I mean, I think that, you know... Uh, the current, the current number that I saw is zip cars at $130 million last year. Um, they're about to go public. They're the largest car sharing service in the world. Bike sharing is the largest, uh, the fastest growing and the largest form of personal transportation. Um, most people walk into their closets, and, and at least in our culture, and can honestly say that there's probably 20 to 30 percent of what's in there that they like and use. Um, and so, you know, we have a surplus, all of us, and um, there's an opportunity instead of just doing the throw away, make more, throw, you know, throw away more, we can begin to, um, to leverage what we have. And there, the trends are there. You know, you can see uh, FreeCycle and uh, Craigslist and other sorts of things that have been facilitating a lot of the recycling historically. Um, now what we're starting to see, in the same way that a service like Etsy spun away from a horizontal platform like eBay, um, that we're starting to see people begin to customize services like <coughs> Swap.com and ThreadUp and Rent the Runway. Um, you, you start to see uh, really interesting companies like Spride and Relay Rides that allow you to take your current car and put it into a network when it's not in use. So, you know, these services, I think, are, are just very exciting. There's uh, over 2,000 companies listed in the mesh directory at meshing meshing it meshing dot uh, meshing dot it and it's growing it's it's doubled in less than a month so um i think it's the i think it's the time because people are compelled to um to start to use the technology in in ways that it was really meant to be secondly i think that from a community perspective people are understanding what the upside is to actually being part of a community and being connected to each other 
Well, let's say you're a business, uh, traditional business, and you like what you've heard today, Lisa. And other than buying uh, the book, The Mesh, put out by our fine folks at uh, Penguin on the portfolio imprint, and I do mean that. It would be a great read and a great resource if you are looking at, at transitioning a traditional business to a more mesh-oriented business. But what closing words of uh, advice could you give a, a, a traditional business if they found what we've talked about today of interest and want to transition their business to more of a mesh-style business? Um, first of all, I think that um, – thank you for the question. I really appreciate that. Um, I think <clears throat> the easiest thing to do – is kind of the walk before you run, put a toe in. And, and that's essentially tribertizing. There's a way in which we can, uh, as, as companies and brands, package an opportunity or package an offer and begin to understand if you sell a product, for example, Best Buy you know, sells uh, consumer electronics, but they have the Geek Squad. It's a service you were referring to earlier, um, the Tide and the dry cleaning and mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, men's warehouse and all of that. I think that the whole idea of connecting to who your customers really are and how they interact with your products and your brand is really fundamental to the mesh. The whole idea is essentially that if you go and buy a car or a bike once and then 10 years later or four years later come back for another one, uh, there's really no relationship that exists between you and the dealership or you and the car company. Certainly that's true for having been in the camera business and other excuse me, consumer electronics as well, this opportunity is basically it's extremely different the relationship and the information that iTunes has or Netflix. And so if we look at, for example, Blockbuster, who is really leading in the rental market, and that's a share platform, they missed the opportunity to create a real true, true mesh business by um, using the, the information and leveraging the social networks and really staying in touch with their customers. So. Netflix comes out with a no late fees and hit the Achilles heel, Achilles heel of exactly what everybody knew Blockbuster was about to suffer from. Yeah. And I think that you know, um, large companies, small companies that are in the market today and have a business where it's not, it's not fundamentally a technology business. You gave two examples earlier with Nike and Adidas. Uh, you know, we all have a face to customers and Facebook and and Groupon and Foursquare and all these different platforms give us um, tools to, to start to feel the pulse of the market rather than listen to the echo of what the marketing department has been saying that may not, in fact, be you know, consistent with the story. Lisa, you've been a uh, great guest, and you have a wonderful book. It's called The Mesh. You should go to uh, meshing.it to find out more. Uh, continued success. Write more books, okay, Lisa? Thanks, guys. Really appreciate the time. On the Advertising Show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsythe. Is there more? Yes, there is. Stay right here. Thanks again to our friend Lisa Gansky. It's uh, always a pleasure to bring back some of these great interviews that we've had the opportunity to present to you over the past uh, 10 years of the Advertising Show, and this is certainly no exception. Advertising Show is being powered by Shipple.com, by the way. That is an incredible marketing tool. A platform we use here on the Advertising Show is called Tendency. And it gets out there, and it's all about uh, touching folks, and it's a good thing. So check it out. It's S-C-H-I-P-U-L.com. Ed Schiffel and his gang here in the Houston market do a wonderful job for us, and we certainly do appreciate and love them. The Advertising Show is brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. Visit online at age.com. The Advertising Show is a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production. We will talk to you again soon.
Why do more media professionals read IWantMedia.com? IWantMedia.com features reports from industry leaders and media personalities. IWantMedia.com gives you quick access to news, stats, trade orgs, and industry publications, and it's updated daily. Forbes says IWantMedia.com contains everything media professionals need to stay ahead of the game. The Washington Post calls it the source for the serious media geek. Do you get it? If you don't, you should. To sign up for free daily email alerts, visit IWantMedia.com.